Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with my semi-frequent co-host Tony Shang, when I can get him, and our very excellent guest, Nick Carter, partner at Castle Island. It's Castle Island Ventures? Yeah, Castle Island Ventures. For having me on, guys. It's a real pleasure. Also also known on Twitter as Dissident. Why Dissident, Nick? Uh, dissident because I like to think that I don't align with any of the popular narratives. I, uh, I, even in the Bitcoin camp, which I definitely more closely align with, I, I have some heretical thoughts from time to time. So that's, uh, that's where dissident comes from. It's an excellent segue. You just released an epic post a few days ago or the other week about different narratives of Bitcoin. You begin by quoting Walt Whitman, like, you know, contradict myself. I contain multitudes. It was a classic. And then you get into, the seven different narratives you have it, you know, e-cash, payments, digital gold, private anonymous, darknet currency, reserve currency, programmable share, database, uncorrelated financial asset. Which narrative are you are you most sympathetic to, or, or what's your what's your vision? Yeah, so the 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 idea of the post came about because uh, Marad and Adam Tashe created this really cool, similar exercise on on the on the four tribes of Bitcoin, and and then I added a, a few more. And I, I'm probably aligned more with the Safedine camp, uh, which is basically the idea that Bitcoin will be similar to gold in that most normal folks probably actually won't have that much interaction with it on a day to day basis. Let's say if it becomes a, a sort of a, a global monetary standard, but it would be an excellent tool for sort of enforcing better, more responsible behavior from central banks. So, so basically, seeing Bitcoin as a competitor to any of the major, you know, currencies that exist today, it's not the most expansive view, but yeah, that, that's where I think this is most likely to go. For those that aren't familiar with the the Safedean philosophy, could you kind of shed some light on why this use of Bitcoin would lead to better behavior from central banks? Yeah, so. I guess the, the, the idea is that, I mean, it's, it's closely tied in with sort of Austrian economics, which I'm actually not an adherent to. I'm probably somewhere in the middle, but the idea is that, um, central banks tend to sort of wantonly inflate the, or perform seniorage or inflate the money supply, you know, to fund short term political objectives, you know, at the expense of the long term, you know, eroding household wealth or, leading to these sort of disastrous uh, boom-bust cycles, which have been more frequent since we entered the, the kind of Bretton Woods era. Th- those kinds of theorists tend to be pretty nostalgic for the, the era when, you know, we when, when money was, currencies were just different weights of gold. Um, so all, all currencies were sort of backed by gold in, in the, the late, I guess, 18th century and early 19th century. And... The, so the view is that if we had a return to a gold standard or sort of a, a similar kind of sound money standard, the idea is that Bitcoin could perform that purpose. If Bitcoin is going to serve as, as the role as gold serves today, what are we going to use as payments on a day-to-day basis? So then the, yeah, so the counter, so the, the additional component to the argument is that actually, um, banks would be free to issue notes against, you know, Bitcoin reserves. I mean, you, you don't even necessarily need to go that far. You can just argue that Bitcoin can be like the SDRs or the final final settlement currency for central banks. But yeah, I mean, Hal Finney actually spoke about this a little bit or wrote about it, that you don't need the the sort of the gold style asset itself to to be the day-to-day currency, just like under the gold standard, people didn't transact in units of gold. It's just that you had institutions that issued notes against that. The, the, the monetary standard. So are, are we going to be using fiat or, or some other currency, cryptocurrency? I mean, you could use, you could in theory use fiat for exchange. It's just that it would be sort of backed by the, uh, you know, the global shared money standard. You've described yourself not as a Bitcoin maximalist, but as an altcoin minimalist. 
talk a little bit about your philosophy there. Yeah, I've I've just been through this cycle of despair over the last um, several years of watching this industry develop. I'm definitely not a, a fan of ICOs. I think that's pretty straightforward, and I I think ultimately it'd be better if we coalesced around one or two or three sort of protocols that we all thought were best for mediating value transfer. You know, the the insane proliferation of altcoins that we've seen is kind of evidence of sort of arrogance, you know, that people think that they can, you know, compete with the most established protocols. And I just, I don't think that's sustainable. And I think they're going to fade away. I don't necessarily have an objection to any new marginal competitor in, in the kind of free market, but in the aggregate, it's, it's kind of a depressing picture right now, I think. What use cases do you think we should coalesce around? Yeah, so I generally hold the view that if we could just nail down value transfer, permissionless P2P value transfer online and, you know, collectively agree to work on one or maybe two protocols, then eventually as we work our way up the stack, any number of applications will be possible on that basis. So then is the, is the idea that any kind of arbitrary apps that are built in this kind of decentralized permissionless way would be on top of the one of those three protocols that everybody agrees to work on that already nailed the value transfer use case. That's kind of my view on this stuff. And I I think that, you know, although many of these cryptocurrencies, altcoins, et cetera, haven't been stress tested up to this point, that's kind of inevitable. So I think uh, building sort of weaker ones with with weaker networks and you know, less desirable security properties. That's just building fragility, basically. And I think that there will come a reckoning when many of these networks are tested to the extreme. And at that point, we'll realize that, you know, security is, it's better, it's worth doing it right, as opposed to um, experimenting too much with with new sort of alternative consensus mechanisms. Right. When when you say two or three, that kind of implies that there's, some different set of trade-offs for each of those protocols is that what you mean and if so what are some of those trade-offs yeah I, valid? I, I definitely think so still an open question as to whether bitcoin can layer in fungibility on the base layer um there's definitely an open debate there a lot of bitcoiners think that you can probably end up layering in privacy enhancements on the transactional layer uh, without confidential transactions and there's been some interesting developments there. So that's definitely one key trade-off. And if Bitcoin can't do that, then, you know, that would lead to maybe a case for Zcash or Monero or Gran, I think, are probably the most credible alternatives there. And then there's also the idea that you want the expressive base layer, uh, which is kind of the Ethereum school of thought. I'm sort of less convinced on that, but I kind of see how Ethereum might be developing a monetary premium. So I'm, I'm hesitant to write it off. And yeah, I've, I've definitely evolved on that in, in the last couple of years. Wait, say more about that. Well, it's just that um, in the, the, the original reason why I started diving into Bitcoin after having heard about it on Reddit for years and years was because it didn't die after uh, Mt. Gox. You know, after the bear market of 2014-15, it sort of like came back. And it was that moment that I realized, like, oh, this is actually a real thing. People, like, really care about it. Um, and it's it's just, like, not going anywhere. And I'm starting to have that same feeling about Ethereum. Like, I, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. There's enough sort of accumulated interest. And, I mean, there's a massive sort of set of individuals that are working on, on sort of all levels of the protocol now. So, yeah, I, I've decided not, not to write off Ethereum. And, you know... To the extent that there are people that identify as Ethereum maximalists, that signals to me that there might actually be kind of a monetary premium developing on Ethereum. So I think the question now is, can it, you know, pivot away from the original idea, which was all of this computation being done on the base layer, which I think is probably not feasible and, and find, you know, fit with people's expectations that allows it to maintain the momentum it has. You talked about how you want to have a conceptual divorce between currencies and sort of this concept of like neo-equities. Talk a little bit about that and how that manifests here. 
Yeah, if there was one concept I could implant in the brains of pretty much everyone in, in the industry, it would be that. Not comparing cryptocurrencies or just straightforwardly currencies. I don't think we even need to call them cryptocurrencies anymore. Not comparing currencies with things which are basically, basically pseudo-equity or just straightforward capital raises. I think they really don't have that much in common. And I would much prefer it if we ended up comparing the equity raises to, you know, traditional equity raises and use that basis of comparison to determine whether we thought they were viable or not. Because, you know, I think many of the, many of the ICOs or equity raises, those are often made in comparison to the like big established platforms. And that's kind of like, yeah, if we can like seize like, you know, half a percent of market share against Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, yada, yada. I, I, I just, I don't think that they're in the same taxonomic group. And I think that we need different metrics to assess them by. Uh, I think the, this, this utility hypothesis that, um, we'll have tons and tons of applications, uh, each with their own native token. I wouldn't call that debunked yet, but I would say that. You know, lots of evidence is stacking up against it. I think all you have to do is look at the user numbers for any of those like utility tokens and see that it's just not working particularly well. And as I said before, I think there's a case to be made that you should be just incorporating those into the like the existing currencies. So, yeah, I, I think we do need a divorce between the two concepts. Just to, to clarify, the pseudo equity. Are you referring to kind of app type raises or are you also referring to new cryptocurrencies or, or at least projects that are striving to be new cryptocurrencies or new expressive base layer tokens? Yeah, that's a good question. I think straightforwardly, many of these things were non-dilutive capital raises to perform, uh, you know, a an activity that was very straightforwardly corporate in nature with the tokens just being the capital raise mechanism and then some sort of contrivance to attempt to return capital to investors. And I think you can point out a lot of examples of those. The line does get blurred a little bit. Like Ethereum would probably be slightly different because, you know, with hindsight, it ended up having a great deal of usage. But as for, you know, pretty much any of these new ICOs, I, I mean, I would class them pretty much all as, as, as pseudo equity. And I would prefer if founders were honest about what they were doing and, uh, instead tried their best to give investors, you know, shareholder level control over the chain and did their best to return capital to the shareholders. But, you know, so, I mean, Binance token is actually a pretty good example of that. It's definitely unorthodox, but they're kind of, following through on the on the claims that they're and you know they've they've actually been returning capital kind of pretty faithfully to uh to ICO investors. And just so like for for those that aren't familiar with Binance tokens model, basically Binance is using some percentage of their revenues each quarter to buy back or is it burn Binance tokens? Do you know Nick? I thought it was a buyback mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. So, I mean, this is basically like a dividend, right? It's like a reverse dividend. So one one might argue that, like, why don't you just, I mean, there are obvious reasons why they wouldn't have just issued a security and straightforwardly returned back cash flows to shareholders. But I'm curious what your take is on this. I mean, it seems like a lot of these projects have tokens that are in, trying to contrive some way to create value and distribute it to token holders. But like, wouldn't it just be more straightforward to have them all be like shares? Yeah, that, I think so. But, you know, it's quite difficult to do that from a regulatory standpoint, especially if you want to sell it to a global audience of investors. So that kind of prohibits you from, uh, from being able to do that most of the time. And so it's much more expedient just to do the straightforward ICO. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I eventually think that we'll get to this world where we have the advantages of the, of the like you know the cryptocurrency capital raise mechanisms together with the guarantees of equity we just need to like marry those concepts so capital island is relatively new curious what what the origin story was and 
what you're planning to do, where, where you'll focus as a firm? Yeah, so Castle Island is uh, myself and Matt Walsh. We're based in, uh, in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, we're a, a new um, early-stage venture fund, fairly small check sizes. The origin story there is that we were both working at Fidelity on a crypto asset fund created in, uh, in 2017 to sort of experiment and create um, institutional knowledge around these cryptocurrencies, basically. And that was a pretty good time and really interesting experience. And, you know, we got to kind of potentially shape some of the direction of the thinking over there. And then after a while, we decided that we were, we wanted to be a little bit more, more entrepreneurial and start a franchise and be able to sort of advocate for some of the, the portfolio companies. And, and, you know, we, we like, you know, taking crypto asset positions, but we didn't think that the crypto hedge fund model was the best way or the most aligned way to do it. And we were more bullish generally on equity and operating companies building on top of these protocols or building services so that the, so that, you know, normal everyday users could access to them. So that was the idea. So the fund is mostly focusing on equity, you know, seed stage as opposed to tokens or or ICOs, or, or even crypto assets, although we'll have some exposure. The big question for any fund benchmarking is Bitcoin is, how do you beat Bitcoin? People are trying different strategies like trading or, or you know, venture like you guys are doing or investing into other hedge funds or certain mining arrangements. Like, how, how have you guys thought about how to, how, to, how to beat Bitcoin? How do you think about sort of how other funds are thinking about that as well? Yeah, that's something we've put a lot of thought into. And since we are probably more Bitcoin focused than virtually any of the other sort of blockchain venture funds, uh, that's, that's something that our LPs have asked us too, right? Because most, most of these funds are, are not particularly oriented towards Bitcoin. I'd say we are more so than most. Uh, both Matt and I are, you know, Bitcoiners, um, although not exclusively so. But yeah, I mean, so. I guess my answer is that there there will probably come a time when Bitcoin levels off and its growth like exits the exponential phase and enters a linear phase. And we're not exactly sure where that is, but it, it will happen at some point. And, you know, there will be a huge opportunity there. You know, once Bitcoin is kind of nailed down as a protocol that people can use functionally, there will be you know, hundreds of operating companies that build on top of that. And, you know, we want to get exposure to those. And I guess the other, the other point there is that we didn't want to just passively allocate to Bitcoin. Uh, that's not very exciting. And you probably can't justify charging fees on that. So, you know, instead we wanted to help build the, you know, the next generation of companies that are working to build something useful um, on top of these protocols. So that's kind of how we justify exposure to operating companies instead of just uh, crypto assets. You mentioned you're a Bitcoiner, but you do depart from some of the, you know, Austrian economic theory and that you're somewhere in the middle. Can you sort of specify where you, where you, where you diverge a little bit? Yeah, I think the, the quick answer is that I would be, I'm not demanding the Bitcoin absorb every other currency in the world today. I would be pretty satisfied if it became something akin to gold. So something that is a off-ramp for people that don't want exposure to their own sovereign currencies and they want something more stable and with you know better guarantees. So I think in its present form, it actually does a pretty decent job, aside from the fact that its exchange rate is super unstable. But yeah, I, I, maybe I have lower expectations for Bitcoin. I would be, and I guess the other side of it is that I'm kind of heretical in that I think that there is a really big role for financial institutions to play in the Bitcoin or, or more generally in the crypto asset story. And I don't think that, what you know, Goldman. Can you say more about that role? Yeah. So I, you know, I think that, you know, necessarily over, let's call it a commodity, over a commodities life cycle, they will become institutionalized and financialized to some degree. So the creation of derivatives and credit and custody for that commodity. I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. I just see that as the creation of services that people want and will facilitate their access to the thing itself. 
And, you know, we, I think we have plenty of evidence that those projects are underway at lots of the Wall Street institutions. And we can, I think that we should sort of cautiously embrace that. You know, having seen the, the conversations that go on inside, they're not entirely tone deaf. They, they want to provide, you know, valuable services. Uh, they want to provide the users exposure to these things. And I don't think it necessarily corrupts the entire mission uh, of a cryptocurrency. I think, you know, it's pretty much inevitable that Bitcoin, at least, is going to get financialized. And that's, that's, that's sort of well underway. So I'm not sure what the value is in fighting that. And what do you think are the triggers for, for large institutions to, to buy Bitcoin? Like what's going to, what's going to lead to adoption? Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody says that it's custody and, and, you know, real, you know, credible, qualified custodianship. The other stuff is probably regulated spot markets with, with good surveillance. And Gemini and GDAX are making good strides there. The last part is probably just comfort and yeah, just becoming more comfortable with the asset. And there's nothing you can do to accelerate that. It just sort of happens over time. You know, that's why Bitcoin haven't been around for 10 years. That's actually, I'd say, a pretty short time in, in, you know, the, in the way that many of these super large institutions operate. So it really does take an extremely long time to like socialize the idea. Um, and make large institutions comfortable with it and, and the whole sort of set of other ancillary institutions, insurers that are kind of necessary for it to function well. So that, that's just a matter of time in my view. Most of the time when we talked about institutional engagement with cryptocurrencies, it's a positive thing. Like people are excited about new fiat inflows. Are there any behaviors from legacy financial institution that would be really negative for Bitcoin success long term? That's a good question. A lot of uh, sort of gold bugs, not to be pejorative, think that the gold market is the, the, the gold spot price is artificially depressed because of the creation of excessive amounts of sort of paper derivative instruments. Um, and that's kind of eating the demand for gold and that nobody actually has spot gold when they're buying a, a gold ETF or something. So there's definitely a concern around there. I'm not sure how likely that is. Um, there's also just the more general worry that Bitcoin, you know, gets sort of softened and to get access to it at all, you still have to go through the KYC AML process. And so then it becomes no different from the existing financial sort of engagement that the normal people have. And I mean, that's, that's definitely a legitimate worry. The question is just, are there alternative channels to owning Bitcoin, like local Bitcoins, that, that stay open? Right, that makes sense. Like, what if, if the vast majority of people are, like, not handling their own keys or don't have custody of their Bitcoin, then you have a lot of the same risks that we have today? Yeah, then, I mean, then the whole, roughly the whole market can be sort of de-anonymized or those identities can be linked to the on-chain addresses. And then kind of the guarantees of the system are less. But yeah, I, I don't, it's a, it's an open question. Perhaps, uh, privacy enhancements, um, and, and sort of a robust P2P market can, can sort of allay that concern. Can you talk a bit more about your uh, investment thesis at, at Castle in terms of where are you looking at and where are you saying, Hey, we're not going to touch this? Yeah, so the, the not touching is pretty straightforward for us. We're not going to get involved in ICOs or anything that's sort of under a regulatory cloud. And we've been pretty consistent with that. That's a position we've held for, for a long time. We will be allocating, uh, some portion of the fund to liquid crypto assets, probably under 50, well under 50%. And those will be to the money protocols that we like or that we think might be able to outperform over, you know, a medium term timeline. And then the, the, the bulk of the strategy is, you know, seed stage operating companies that are either building on top of protocols, which are building services that we think are plausible and, you know, might actually have a product market fit. So, I mean, I, I guess generally speaking, we're targeting so-called infrastructure and especially in the financial services world, that's definitely where we think we can um, add value. Uh, coming from Fidelity, where, you know, we'd both been through the rigmarole of 
of like contemplating how Bitcoin fits into that business and looking at all the regulatory pitfalls there. So yeah, we'll be looking at entrepreneurs that are building financial services linked to sort of like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And then more generally sort of at protocol agnostic businesses, I'm sort of very closely associated with CoinMetrics. So we're looking at, you know, blockchain analysis businesses. I think there are really interesting operating companies to be built um, just pulling data out of these blockchains. So that's another focus of ours. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not entirely um, indexing our fund against um, Bitcoin or, or looking exclusively at startups there. I think it might be a little bit too early in this phase of the market to be looking at too many application companies, kind of like how you didn't have good video streaming that, you know, developed on the web um, until much later, even though people wanted to do it really early on. I think that's kind of the stage we're at. So the kind of tooling that gets this market going, financial infrastructure, like any custody businesses, blockchain analysis, that's that'll probably be our bread and butter. There's a couple things I want to double click on. One is you mentioned the web. Where do you think the web is a sort of a good analogy in terms of you know understanding cryptocurrencies and how they will evolve and where do you think it falls short? Yeah, well, I mean, we have to be careful of analogies, right? I uh, yeah, I, I I do think that the the time frames of the web, I mean, they might be a little bit more accelerated now, but those are pretty indicative. Like it took all these networking protocols a really long time to reach maturity and a really long time to enable these, you know, mass market sort of really convenient applications. And I mean, you could say arguably, you know, the the like early 2010s, 2007 onwards, that was when the web really reached its potential. I mean, email was a, a first initial really solid use case, but these these real like global mass market lightweight applications didn't develop till much later. And I'm kind of thinking on the same along the same lines. And we've only had cryptocurrencies for nine years, so it might be a little bit early to try and design a protocol which is P2P networking for you know hundreds of millions of unbanked people with all of that being settled on chain, you know? So that's, that's kind of the way I think about it. And I guess, again, the analogy frequently made with the web is that TCP IP was the winner and all the other protocols died. Yeah. It, re- it remains to be seen. I, everyone loves to talk about the, uh, the social media companies and the MySpaces and the Facebooks and, you know, uh, why, why, why did the early, social media companies die off and like why did facebook beat myspace and so then like isn't the analogy that the you know the 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 second entrance into the cryptocurrency market would be a better place why would bitcoin stick around i think there's probably a disanalogy there i tend to think that the that it, it's you shouldn't decontextualize um cryptocurrencies and it's important to remember the, the context of their founding their creation and, and like the the like the rabidity of the community that's building on top of them. So yeah, I, I'm not a big buyer of the like MySpace Facebook argument at all. Yeah, you mentioned Murad earlier. If he was on this podcast, and I just did a podcast with him. He would say that you know Silicon Valley is like nothing to offer, <laughs> or as you know, is just totally wrong when they when they compare it to the web. And we should look to you know understanding how monies have emerged over time to understand how crypto will evolve. And people keep trying to make make the comparisons, and he. He just doesn't see it. Well, I mean, these things are uh, communication protocols. So it's probably important to consider the history there. But yeah, I mean, I, al- I also, you know, very place a very strong emphasis on monetary history as well. What applications, if, if not now, soon, or, or eventually, is blockchain good for beyond beyond money, you think? Or what other applications are you, are you excited about? Well, it's kind of a weird question for me, because... I think if you can sort of nail down, you know, secure monetary transmission, then, you know, you can layer that into virtually any application that uses money today, but that just uses like PayPal or credit cards or bank transfers. So there's there's no limit to the, you know, the set of applications that can be used, assuming that they require some sort of value plugin. I'm naturally much more pessimistic on the, on the just like, like generic blockchain story. I can, there's very, very few applications that I can think of 
you know, the, uh, if you're, I guess this comes back to the problem of like, you know, is there such thing as a permission blockchain? Is that even a real thing? I think we're, you know, we're starting to realize that the answer might actually be no. There's like plenty of applications for like consortium, you know, shared pools of data that are permissioned, but that doesn't necessarily require a blockchain in my view. Yeah. What are the applications that I like? Um, I'm definitely paying attention to the day. Yeah. Yeah. DAOs. I think we'll get to DAOs at some point. It's just going to take us a really long time. Uh, there's a lot of tooling like building blocks and sort of accumulated trust that needs to build, I think, before the DAO story makes sense. And, and paint a picture, like, what will the DAO story look like when it hits its peak? Or, like, how, how will that change things? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm, like, short-term bearish on DAOs and long-term very bullish. And I feel like we'll eventually be able to recapture a lot of these corporate structures in a way that doesn't require, uh, you know, a lot of the, that legal overhead or, you know, geographical indexing. So I am super optimistic that we'll have quote unquote decentralized corporations, but it's not just a question of layering in on-chain votes. You need a lot more than that. And this comes back to the question of governance. You know, what are the processes that make a corporation work? And if you look at it, it's a huge amount of stuff. So you have coordinating the actual employees and then the board, you know, you've got a board of directors mostly and shareholder relationships and then you have the legal contracts that govern the relationship between shareholders and directors and that is that's something that has been developed over hundreds of years uh, just through precedent and trial and error and you know the common law system which has worked out all these precedents and then you also have the government which sort of is the final enforcer of all the the, the, the kind of property rights that make these things work so you know it's not just a corporation in isolation, which needs to be rebuilt, it's the whole set of sort of parallel assurances and these these concepts which just evolve over time until the corporate structure makes sense. And so we kind of need a backdrop of um, sort of acceptable, I don't know, it's even, it's hard to imagine right now, but you kind of need a backdrop, you know, whatever the equivalent of common law and business logic and, you know, precedent in contract formation and shareholder director relationships, we need to somehow create that in a DAO context for a DAO to work. Why, why does the DAO need shareholders and directors? Well, I mean, I, I guess the idea here is that we're creating decentralized corporations. And the idea of a corporation is that you have a set of individuals that come together to finance a collective enterprise, and then they eventually then reap the profits from from that enterprise if it proves profitable. But yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't necessarily need uh, investors or shareholders. Well, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to ask is, do the d- director, maybe this isn't what you mean, but director to me implies some kind of representation here where you like elect leaders that make some set of decisions for the organization. Is, is that what you mean, or do you mean something else? Or am, am yeah, I by directors, I mean like this, the C-suite um, right. and, and board members. So do you, do you think, I mean, I think a lot of the theory around, or at least the idealism around decentralized organizations is that you don't, like, you know, this this entity kind of operates on its own through the collective action of all these people with without representatives. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I guess I've been, I've, I might have been answering a slightly different question. I was kind of engaging with the, the ICO capital raise DAO idea. Whereas I think, you know, more generally, you could have a DAO, like you could call Bitcoin a DAO because miners are kind of performing a service and then the network is paying them for that service. So yeah, I, I see exactly what you mean. Yeah, I, I, I do like the idea of like creating a two-sided market where nobody is actually, so where you have a network intermediating that and no one is technically in control. It is, it is hard to imagine what the first non-money one will be though. Yeah, it seems like you'd have to constrain the set of decisions like by a lot. <laughs> like it, it does a very specific, at least today, it's like pretty intolerant to ambiguity. Yeah, I think a lot of those constructs where, you know, the idea is like, we'll create this market for a service and then people will just 
carry out the service, and then we'll use this token to pay them. It kind of relies on this story of, of human motivation, which is purely economic. And um, that's not what I necessarily agree with. So I think we have kind of a long way to go as far as like designing token economic systems. Kind of zooming out, you're one of the um, most thoughtful people around governance in the space. How, how would you introduce the topic to folks that really haven't spent that much time on governance? Um, why does it matter? Like, where should they start when they think about it? That's tough. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's a super broad topic. The, most of my engagement with the governance debate has been in the context of, of probably of ICOs. So I was looking at them through a corporate governance lens initially and was questioning whether that they, you know, whether they were providing any kind of rights similar to those um, at corporations. So that was my first brush with the topic. And then the the next thrust was, you know, does Bitcoin have governance? What does that look like? Should should we alter it? What should it look like? And so then from that I got into this this free and open source world of governance where there aren't necessarily formal structures, or there may be, but the, the, they're mostly informal. And I think that's a pretty good starting point. That kind of tends to dominate models that are sort of inherited from like the Linux or the Apache model or any of these open source models, that is probably, I would say, the most important thing to understand. Not that there is like one or two models that you can inherit from open source collaboration, but just to begin to get an understanding of the debates that have gone on there. I think in this industry, many of the debates are very similar to debates that have occurred in other open source projects. Because it's kind of permissionless governance, virtually anyone can enter or exit at any time. And leadership is kind of malleable and you have these notions of meritocracies. So how do you actually coordinate and organize behavior in that context? That would be, you know, the essential starting point, in my opinion. And uh, for, for folks like looking for resources to get started, I, I highly recommend checking out Nick's talk from uh, the Zcash conference, Zcon. Alongside the the talks by Hudson Jameson, I think on Ethereum, yeah. and I think did, did somebody talk about Zcash's governance too? Um, I'm not sure, but there there was definitely a panel on governance. Yeah, there was a great panel as well. And then there was kind of a governance crisis that was kicked off at the convention over Zcash's <laughs> governance. Oh, really? Say more about that. Well, so Eric Meltzer, who's a friend of mine, um, oh, yeah, made a proposal. <laughs> to uh, redirect some of the founders reward uh, in Zcash to community fund and that was not not taken well I think probably by by the major Zcash stakeholders. Yeah, I mean it's it's a pretty interesting case study because like the, the stakeholders didn't like it, the thread got locked then there was some debate around like should should they have the power to lock the thread and uh, it's a whole can of worms. Well, I I mean I I think you know, eventually, um, the, the Zcash Foundation and company folks acquitted themselves pretty well. Uh, but it's a broader question. It's, does the, do the recipients of the Zcash Founders Reward serve at the pleasure of the Zcash community, whatever that means? Or are, you know, are they sort of permanently entitled to the, to the fruits of the reward? And I think for Zcash to succeed, I would actually go for the former view, which is that, you know, the community set up a social contract whereby some funds would be redirected for various purposes, but they ultimately, it should be a consent of the government, consent of the government kind of situation. But I mean, I can also see why, you know, they're not eager to violate the initial contract they made whereby they're entitled to the, to the, the, the fund, the founder's reward. Right. And, and for a discipline like this in Zcash, at least there's, it's not like you can, like every quarter, Zcash holders go to the polls and they, they vote on these kind of initiatives. It's like very much a, you try to get consensus in meet space and then you bring it to those that have the power to make decisions and you like ask them to make the decision. Is that right? Well, yeah. And, and I mean, the, the distribution of the reward was set at the outset and hasn't really changed much. But uh, I, you know, the, the Zcash Foundation, uh, which is kind of a new entity, has also been doing really good work. They created a governance panel, uh, which doesn't make any formal decisions. It's more just to consult a, a wider set of community members. 
So I would say, you know, Zcash leadership is really thoughtful about this stuff, actually. And, and they're trying to institutionalize processes, governance, such that they are formal and can maybe even be a check on the power of the initial founders. Uh, so that, you know, to that extent, I really support that. It's just that, um, you know, it, crises like that kicked off by Eric's proposal tend to reveal where, you know, power actually is vested. Right. And I think some, it sounds like Zcash is starting to create some of these processes that are more formal, but some some might react to this and say, well, this is why you need, like, you don't you need to do away with all of the ambiguity and have all of these decisions be made on chain through some kind of voting mechanism or, mechanism or something. I, I, I obviously don't believe that, like, this is strictly better, but like, how would you how would you think about this? Like, why? Where is this better? Where is this less good? Um, maybe give some examples. Yeah, I, I don't like how voting is just conflated with governance. So a lot of people that run, you know, crypto projects will say we've got a vote, and so this constitutes governance. So you can forget about all the closed door meetings that we have where we actually decide what happens to the chain. Like this is the thing to look at. Here is the public vote, and like you can see that we don't have any power or control, which is obviously not the case most of the time. So I think where you do have on-chain votes, in you know many cases, it's kind of a red herring. So you can look at like EOS, for instance, where there was a constitution, and then that constitution was just kind of arbitrarily changed by Dan Larimer. You know, whether or not that was the right thing to do, it showed the, the arbitrariness of the process you know, and I don't think the voters were consulted on that one. And then in uh, in Tezos, for instance, is a really interesting case study. So, I mean, in theory, you do have voting and protocols meant to amend itself through on-chain votes. But then also, you know, the biggest battle over the protocol is playing out in U.S. courts right now. Um, you know, between DLS, the company, Brightman's, and people who contributed to the Tezos ICO. So, yeah, I, I'm not convinced at all by the story of on-chain votes. I think voting works in the real world because it is a kind of a nexus for coordination. People tend to be pretty eager to vote in the real world because it, it really matters. And more than anything, I'd say this might be a little bit of a, a kind of a strange view, but I think voting makes people comfortable with the idea of being governed because they feel that they have buy-in to the political system, you know, and, and if you're, if you just have these perfunctory votes on an on-chain basis with 5% of people participating, I'm not sure you're really achieving a lot at all. Um, aside from it being a process that you can point to, uh, you can point regulators to and say that we're not in control of the chain. Yeah. I mean, my, my naive view on this is that it feels like the more complex your organization, the more like purely like the less power is actually in the voting process. Like the more the more perfunct, like the the more like symbolic the voting process is. But where you have something that's more the where the decisions are more clear and controlled, like for instance, maybe the maker governance model, where they're on a very specific set of things and have very clear like roles and they're time consistent and all these kind of things that might make more sense do you agree with that or do you feel like it's it's, it's always voting is always going to be kind of an imperfect solution in these contexts no I, I wholeheartedly agree if you very carefully delineate the um the nature of the the voting process and you make it clear what the expectations are i think that's how you have a good outcome and oftentimes i think the complexity is just a way of obscuring you know, where power is truly vested. So I think in the EOS case, for instance, power is ultimately vested with block one. And then you get this this whole, you know, sideshow of voting and, you know, allocating stake and everything. But, you know, in my view, the ultimate allocative and uh, decision-making control is, is totally vested with block one. I'm not sure they've really done a great job of convincing people that they've you know, dispersed power to, to the set of token holders. And yeah, but it, it, it is transparency in these systems is really hard, right? And that was a huge critique of Bitcoin 
you know, with the core developers that they were doing things behind closed doors and non-transparent, and they wouldn't let anyone else into the, you know, into their inner circles. And the informality, I guess, was used as a tool to stay untransparent. So I'm, yeah, I'm not sure there are many um, encouraging case studies to look at so far. Yeah. What can, so for, I, I guess, uh, like to get actionable, like what, for, for just the average user of a cryptocurrency or supporter of a project, like how can you detect whether there are governance issues with the project that you're interacting with? Or like what, what do you look out for? I think it should be pretty, I mean, I think it should be fairly easy to detect and it should be, you know, do you feel like, you have buy-in to the project? Do you feel that they care about you at all? Um, you know, do the developers perform outreach to end users at all? Is there a dialogue at all? Uh, and it doesn't require voting at all. It just requires engagement um, with the community of end users. And if that's lacking, you know, then you know there's a problem. And I, I think also if the an encouraging sign would be if the rule set is established and you know credible efforts are made to stick to that rule set. So even if it means like yeah, I'm going to be the benevolent dictator for life, uh, just the you know the admission, the acknowledgement, you know of that power structure that that's good I think because otherwise you have these uh, informal systems where you might have a benevolent dictator or you know a small set of individuals that have ultimate control. And they don't want to acknowledge it and they, they want to, you know, play it off as power being, uh, you know, a function of community consent when it's not at all. So I don't think it should be hard to, to uh, detect at all. And what, and from the project's perspective, like what, what are some of the most common mistakes people are making? Or maybe on the other side of it, like what's, what's a high ROI thing that would be easily implementable for all these projects? High, highest ROI in my view is transparency. Um, and like transparency that is so transparent that it hurts. So like Vitalik, oh, sorry, uh, Zuko is a good example. He, you know, publicly posted his salary, um, that he takes from the Zcash finest reward. And that like sucks because people made fun of him and there's like a whole, like this whole big thing. But that's the kind of transparency that I think I'm after, right? So. That yeah, that that's one. And then outreach, I think, is another. So actually trying to engage who the stakeholders are in your project, uh, make sure that they feel like they have a say. Uh, that's another. And I'd say low ROI is designing excessively complex Byzantine mechanisms, you know, to purportedly give users a voice, but which just end up layering on complexity and and that nobody ends up using. I was, I was just going to ask, like, properly rated or overrated all of these, like, fancy governance designs? And it sounds like uh, overrated. I don't necessarily have anything against voting or polls. Um, I think non-binding votes are pretty promising. If, you know, if Ethereum could mobilize behind a new carbon vote or actually get a bunch of use, like, convince a bunch of people to vote on these things, I think that would actually be a really useful signal too like developers into the foundation. It's I, I wonder though, like there's this concept that a lot of these I mean you mentioned it yourself with Zcash. There, there's this concept that like these these foundations and companies and teams are will dissolve over a period of time. Oh no, you didn't mention it. Somebody else is assigned to somebody else about eventually dissolving the Ethereum Foundation. But anyways like general trend that people want to reduce power from these central entities that that make decisions for these protocols. How possible is this, given your view on governance? Because it seems like it's it still depends on like a few people in power, albeit being transparent and reaching out and you know all of these things. But it's kind of hard to imagine those those like you know controlling powers completely disappearing and everything still moving forward. Yeah, I've been pretty skeptical of that view, and I think I've compared it to the idea that you know, in communist societies that the state would eventually dissolve, you know, and, and return to the Marxist style kind of socialist utopia where there is no state. And it's kind of reminiscent of that, I think. I Very rare is the person that willingly surrenders power once they have it, right? There's not many historical precedents for that. 
Um, I think what actually works is uh, building institutions that are kind of hard to tear down and that end up having offsetting power, you know, such that no single entity can dominate. And so I'm, I'm more optimistic about like the slow process of institutionalization, whereby you incorporate these diverse views of different stakeholders and let them battle it out time and time again. And then eventually, in theory, you have a power balance that develops. Do you feel like that's happening in Bitcoin, for example? Because I was thinking, I mean, Bitcoin is probably the best example of one that doesn't really have, you know, like a foundation or a company at the center of it. Yeah. So, you know, my my view is that, and I think, who said this, like Peter Van Valkenburg maybe said this, that the, the best example of functioning governance is when you have rancor and dissent and like lots of really visible infighting. I'm, that's probably not how we put it. But, um, you know, I, I think there may, that might be happening in Bitcoin. I'm kind of hopeful that that's what's happening. Um, I definitely think there are different cores of power that are developing. So it's definitely not just like Blockstream anymore. You know, you have also the DCI and uh, you have chain code and you have, you know, the, the important second layer institutions, Lightning Labs. And then a whole bunch of businesses that are building that also have a lot of say. And of course, you have the miners who I think have slightly less input these days. But yeah, the, the way I measure that is can new entities and individuals break into the like core developer kind of stack and have influence? And, you know, I think there is some evidence of that. Um, I think we've seen in the last year, you know, new sorts of developers and new businesses breaking in and having a meaningful say in the debate. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of my yardstick. Is there other white space for innovation within within governance, whether on a structural level or implementation level, that you want to see people experimenting on? Yeah, I would love to see more non-binding on-chain vote experimentation because we don't have a great way of sending signals back to developers. And I think you should be consulting the community and also however that is. So maybe that means creating something like the Zcash governance panel, which has been, I think, fairly successful, or maybe it means actual on-chain votes. But, you know, I think you do need a way to kind of a Sybil-ish resistant way of finding out what people actually want. I want to zoom out to a a couple of topics in which you've, you've given some thought. One is you, you, you wrote a a unreleased piece. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but basically saying that the, the differences between proof of stake and proof of work are perhaps a bit overstated in terms of its benefits. Say more about what you were trying to achieve in that piece. Yeah, hopefully I'll one day uh, put together the courage to actually publish that one. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is I think that the argument between proof of stake and proof of work has been really underexplored. And oftentimes the arguments in favor of proof of stake are just, you know, are fairly simplistic, like Bitcoin consumes a lot of energy and so we should replace it Uh, and that's not very convincing to me you know at all really um and i would love to see more reasoned discussion on the topic and yeah so i was thinking about it and i I wrote up a piece which i'll probably eventually publish there's a few sort of good critiques of proof of stake and a a few critiques that i think are, are less valid there's this idea that um proof of stake doesn't cost any resources and I think that's not the case. I think the resource cost for proof of stake and proof of work is, is pretty much similar, except in proof of stake, it's financial resources, uh, which is basically money that would otherwise be used for other purposes. And in proof of work, it's, you know, financial resources, which are then instantiated into physical infrastructure. So I don't think there's a huge discrepancy there. Uh, my main rankle with proof of stake is that I compare it to a um, a dedicated ASIC, which never degrades, has no upkeep costs, yeah, doesn't depreciate, and where new, more efficient versions are never made. And the idea there is that, essentially, the other way to put it is that by buying a proof-of-stake token, you buy permanent anti-dilution rights, assuming that you stake. And that, I think, has kind of a stultifying effect on the distribution of wealth. And I think generally speaking, a lower Gini coefficient is better than a higher one. And I think that in a proof of stake system, you're likely 
to end up having pretty high Gini coefficients because I, you know, just the, the properties that I listed, I think lead to less churn in the validator set. So I think the fact that ASICs are costly to operate, you know, that they eventually break, the new generations come in, all of those mean that they're continually changing tides in terms of who's running them and who's, you know, benefiting. But with, with stake, um, it's, it's harder for me to see how the validator set changes over time. Well, that's interesting. I'd actually, I'd, I hadn't heard that argument that proof of stake could lead to a greater source of inequality since, you know, people with a lot of the staking token would just continuously be able to stake it. The analogy is really strong. Like, kind of riffing on the Gini coefficient thought, though, one argument you could make is that a more fairly distributed cryptocurrency would might be compelling because Bitcoin, while it is like pretty dis- like decentralized, secured, widely distributed, still is concentrated in the hands of relatively few people. What do you think about that? I know you tweeted recently about airdrops and giving away money um, and how that hasn't worked historically. But yeah, curious just like how you thought about that. Yeah, I, I encourage anybody to read about the story of uh, voucher-based privatization after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's a really interesting case study. And, you know, you had um, people going in and buying up vouchers for pennies on the dollar, millions of vouchers, and then because the people selling them didn't really know what they're worth. So they just got rid of them. Um, so I think that is, that's kind of an, an analogy for the problem with airdrops or fair drops is that people that aren't your target audience don't necessarily want the thing that it is you're giving away. So they're likely to part with it for cheap. And so I think it does end up probably being accumulated in the hands of a few. So I'm not 100% convinced on this airdrop or fair drop methodology. Although I guess it remains to be seen. Maybe will people will design really interesting systems uh, for giving that away. I think, you know, there's this, there's this desire to have a low Gini coefficient and have broad distribution of cryptocurrency. Yet, all of, really all of the designs that we've seen uh, end up concentrating in the early holders. And just you know, looking at the ones that we have today, if you imagine those becoming the reserve currency of the world, you're going to have a, a, like a handful of people that are insanely wealthy. And maybe like it, you know, it's good for everybody, but still it seems undesirable that there's such a high concentration of, of wealth. So like, I, I guess this is the motivation for experimenting with fair drops and widely distributed coins. But like, you know, to your point, the historical evidence suggests that those, those systems haven't worked well. Um, yeah. I, I guess the question is to what extent can you design a society which has a low Gini coefficient or has low inequality? And maybe the answer is that those societies can only emerge as opposed to being created. Right. And, think- you know, I'd argue that both Bitcoin and Ethereum are actually pretty well distributed. I mean, you kind of have this offsetting pattern whereby, you know, if the price increases, people with a lot of the coin will sell it off to, you know, just to divest a little bit. And as time goes on, I think that leads to you know, things like leveling out, leveling out a little bit. Yeah, another topic you, you've thought quite a bit about is prediction markets. So I'm curious how your own views, uh, you know, with, with Augur's launch, your own views have, have evolved. And also, you, you've thought a bunch about where others have sort of misconceptions about prediction markets and how to understand them. So if you can elaborate on some of those as well. Yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of hand-wringing over the so-called assassination markets. I think there are pretty compelling um, arguments against that, which have been made in various places. I think probably firstly by Paul Stortz. The, the, the short version of the argument is that you probably won't ever get this like GoFundMe style assassination bounty market where like, let's say 10 million people really want someone dead. They can each bet no on the market for someone's death. And then the assassin just has to bet $1 on yes. And then, you know, kill the person and then collect $10 million, right? So I don't think that works because if, if the markets are efficient, they should uh, roughly be calibrated to the odds of someone actually dying in the given period. This is super morbid. You guys can stop me if, uh, <laughs> if you want. You're good. Um, but, you know, I looked up at some actuarial tables and if I'm in my thirties, the odds of me dying in a given year are like a thousand to one. <laughs> so. 
the you know the market should actually reflect that, right? And so what you'll have is if the odds get super skewed, if there's a market on me on my death in the next 12 months, which is 50 million to one, because there's like a whole bunch of people out there that like want to put a bounty on me. I think what you'll get is, you know, the other side of that bet now becomes extremely cheap, right? And so any arbitrageur could look at that and be like, well, for a dollar, you know, I can, I have this extremely high expected value if this person just happens to die from natural causes. So I might as well take the yes side of the bet just to get it back to like where it should roughly be trading at like, you know, maybe around a thousand to one. So I think the normal market dynamics actually correct for that because it becomes very, very cheap to get, to buy yes tokens on the market. Um, if, if this asymmetric bounty has been placed, you know, that said, so, so my critique is not that we're going to have these crowdsourced massive bounties, asymmetric bounties, which enable assassins to pay themselves off at, at you know, million dollars to one odds. However, you know, I, from an ethical perspective, I just, I'm not really a fan of the existence of markets on people's lives. So yeah, I, I don't think anyone is going to be killed due to an auger market, but it is probably a little bit unpleasant to see your name on an assassination market. Yeah. Zooming out a little bit, you've, uh, you know, today, uh, Kalsamani published a post talking about how Augur sort of defies the fat protocol thesis and that it will, it, the app capture value. You've said you're, you're less of a fat protocol fan and more of a fat monies fan. Can you sort of describe what, for the audience, what, what both the difference between the two, what would they mean and, and why you're more on the fat money side? Yeah, I think maybe fat protocol has been kind of unfairly maligned over the years. But it's also been used to justify a lot of nonsense, too. I think there's probably two concepts of FAT protocol. And um, interrupt me if I'm getting it wrong. So there's one where the idea is that in the universe of value, most of the value accrues to the protocol itself and not to operating companies or applications that are building on top of it. And then there's the other FAT protocol idea, which is that uh, protocols are these really cool shared interactive layers which are like oceans of data, which anyone can deal with, which is kind of a novel thing. So, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not a big believer in the first case, but like pretty bullish on the second. Fat monies, um, I guess that's just kind of a catchphrase, I guess, at this point. I'm actually not 100%. Who, who was it that wrote about fat monies? Was it Arjun? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have his piece right in front of me, but I guess the idea is that, um, you know, there will be a, a few like money tokens and a ton of value will accrue to them. And then as for the like computational layers or the smart contract layers, there wouldn't be a lot of value there. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, definitely put me on the fat money side of the equation <laughs> with Augur. I don't think Augur confirms or denies either view. It's worth, it's worth something like 300 million right now. Right. So yeah, I mean, I just think Augur is just, priced according to the weird dynamics of this crazy market right now with a lot of anticipation being you know manifested into the price of the token right now and not a lot of kind of ground truth and i mean i've used auger but uh, there's not that many users and probably not enough to justify the price um and I, also auger in my view hasn't proved itself with the decentralized oracle mechanism sufficiently to justify the price for that matter so I think that the Augur price is just a, a manifestation of the crazy expectation that has been plugged into all of these assets. Um, and I mean, there's things that are worth more than Augur, which are complete nonsense, right? Like complete and utter nonsense. So I don't see it as proof either way, aside from it being proof that this market is still ridiculous and we need <laughs> many more contractions. Yeah, I've heard it, I've heard it uh, described recently as a meme market. Which is yeah. like pretty accurate. Yeah, pretty much. In closing, want to end on sort of the dissident side. I, I want to say a person, and then I want you to uh, sort of share where you feel the crux of any disagreement you you have lies. So, so the, the first person would be would be Chris Dixon. Like, where where do you think you guys have a your critical difference of opinion on something? I ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. I I uh, truthfully can't pin him. I'm not exactly sure what his uh, his like key stances are. So I don't know if I can engage with that one. 
How, how about uh, Murad, who we mentioned before? Yeah, Murad. Murad, like, he likes basis too much. I, I'm a little bit more skeptical. <laughs> how about uh, Eric Meltzer? Uh, Meltzer, I probably disagree with him on EOS. That's for sure. Yeah, that, that, that would probably be the crux. But, I, you know, I, I like Eric a lot. He's a great guy. How about Kyle Samani? Um, Samani and I have tons of disagreements. Um, although he's, I think he might be, uh, changing his mind on a few issues. <laughs> and we definitely agree on things like the velocity thesis. So maybe the differences between us are overstated. How, how about Jimmy Song? Um, good question. Uh, Jimmy is probably more of an ardent, uh, Bitcoiner than I am. So I have space in my heart for some non-Bitcoin assets and you know i long term i think dow's probably end up being a thing so so yeah i think he's he's purer than i am yeah he's maybe too obvious of a, of a person uh, vitalik vitalik yeah i i i aligned with vitalik on his critiques of on-chain votes you know big time but uh i yeah i everything else i guess <laughs> is there any uh any person i didn't mention tony or nick who you think it's it's worth mentioning critical disagreement with this is a this is a tough exercise man i feel like you're uh you're setting me up to say something i might regret <laughs> to lose all friends yeah <laughs> well actually i got one what what about yourself like two years ago oh uh, yeah yeah that's a good one uh two years ago i was a much bigger fan of monero than i presently am and actually i was just much more idealistic and kind of utopian and I was like really excited about Steam it, you know. I, I think I might have even had like a five minute flirtation with Dash. Wow. Yeah, and I I also just wasn't as sophisticated, so I didn't really understand stuff like the block size debate. I think I mean I might have been a a big blocker for like fifteen <laughs> minutes. So yeah, really I, I, yeah, I I'm not afraid to like let my my thoughts evolve on stuff, and I think that should be the the reaction to new information and I'm, you know, always trying to learn, you know, potential flaws with Bitcoin, especially potential failure modes and exploring those. And yeah, totally happy to evolve my beliefs. And uh, I mean, it'll probably end up with me being called a hypocrite at some point. What about you from two years from now? I don't know what that guy's going to look like. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Nick has been a, an awesome podcast. Tony was had a hard stop at 2 p.m. and he's just rolled right through it. <laughs> so uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you guys so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.